Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Welcome, brothers and sisters, and greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Dear Lord, looking above, looking from above over all things, over our world, which is so fast-paced and so distracted and so sensationalist, you are a God of love and of patience and of faithfulness and of righteousness and of holiness. As you dwell outside of time, that testifies to your pace compared to our far too busy and far too hectic pace of life that we choose on earth. We don't have to follow the mainstream. We don't have to follow the culture. We don't have to follow the television that sets out a pace for man. No. We can embody and adopt and embrace your standard, your ways, your word, your call to holiness, your call to righteousness, your call to obey you, to obey your law, because your law is good. We know your law is the best path to follow. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Folks, for the last three weeks, we have looked at the first chapter of Genesis, the very beginning. Let's recap. God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1. The earth was dark, and then God created light in verse 3. Dynamic light onto the earth in so many ways. This is symbolic of what God does for mankind. God created a light. In him was a light. God separated the day from the night. There are rhythms. There are distinctions. God made from the water atmosphere. God made boundaries then for the water and boundaries of where the new land appeared that the water would only go in this place and over here in this place, but it would no longer be 360 or over the entire face of the earth. It would be restricted here and here. And therefore, there were also boundaries for the land. 
And God made vegetation for the world, for the entire world, for all of the creatures that every green plant would be for food. God specifically made the sun, the moon, and the stars besides the earth. And God created the creatures of the earth to fill the earth, to multiply on the earth. And he, what does it say? He blessed them. They were blessed by God. Then God makes man in his image after his likeness. The Trinitarian God of the Bible. We are made in his image. Mankind is given a limited authority to care for the earth. Yes, we're tagged in. We are stewards in everything that that means. Some would also call it a manager, that we are to manage the affairs of the earth, to manage the resources of the earth, to manage the creatures of the earth. And in biblical language, I believe faithful steward is the charge to man. God made man specifically, mankind specifically, male and female. And what does it say again? God blessed them. And he charges them, male and female, to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the creatures of the earth. And God concludes by saying, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So after the six days of creation, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Look at the patterns there, folks. Look at the repetition. Whenever there's repetition in the Bible, whenever there is a back-to-back -back repetition or a threefold repetition, where the, or I should say the statement is threefold, but it, it, the statement is made and then it's repeated twice. You know, God is really making a point here. And you see a lot of descriptive repetition and descript, uh, repeated statements, rather, in the scripture. God is very specific and very particular about what he is doing, what he is saying, and what he is communicating to mankind. So in scripture, this is all very intentional. I think some presuppose that so much in life, so much happens, and maybe there's not a particular point to it, or there are random occurrences and random events, but there's not always a specific purpose or a specific reason for something occurring. I don't believe that. I believe God is far too intentional and far too purpose-driven that anything happens 
simply by chance devoid of God. Let's look at these verses again. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Verse 1, the magnificent work of creating the heavens and the earth, what do we see here? It was done. There are a few moments in time in the scripture, in the Holy Bible, where you see a very specific beginning, if you will, back in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God is declaring not the beginning for him because he lives outside of time. He is fully eternal across all time. But what he is saying is for mankind's understanding, for what I am passing to mankind, the part that I am divulging to mankind. See, God's mind and God's spirit and God, everything about who he is, is far beyond our comprehension and understanding. There is so much more to God than what he has chosen to reveal to us. And you may know that because you very likely have questions and wonderings and inquiries that you would like to ask God because there are things that you are curious about, things that you want to know, like what was before the beginning? God knows he was there. What was 100,000 years before the beginning? God knows he was there. I don't know. God is so much greater than our limited knowledge, than our limited understanding. But what he gives us in the Holy Bible is what he wants to convey to us. And scripture repeats multiple times that everything he has given us in his word is not only righteous, a righteous declaration to us, a holy transmission to us, a communication to us, a letter to us, a descriptor to us about who he is and what he's about and what the kingdom of God is about, but it's also sufficient for us. He's given us everything we need for faith, for trust, for hope, to rely on him, to love him, to devote our lives to him, to be sold out to him, to realize there's nothing greater than God on this earth or outside of this earth, this life, the next life, whenever. God is great, and he is the greatest. And nothing compares to him. Nothing. You might chase other things in life, and you, like King Solomon, great King Solomon, for those who know the story, he lived what I would say devoid of faith for a very long time in his life. Because in Ecclesiastes, he talks about everything he pursued outside of God. And he said nothing else settled or satisfied the human heart except for God. See, he came back to God. His realization was that nothing else would satisfy, and truly nothing else does satisfy. So coming back to it, there are points in the scripture where God says, this is the beginning, and then this work is done. The magnificent work of creating the heavens and the earth was done, we read in chapter 2, verse 1. 
Verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Who did the work? He did. His work that he had done. There's a repetition. And he rested on the seventh day from what? All his work that he had done. God is making a point. God is declaring to the entire known cosmos who did the work. God did the work. And God rested. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that what? He had done in creation. God rested from all his work that he had done. Did did God need to rest, folks? The God of all eternity who creates planets out of nothing, who creates stars out of nothing. What year did he create planet Earth? What numbered year was that? What, What numeric year was that? Do we know? No, of course we don't know. God knows he was there. God put the marker down. God has his own history because he was there and he did it. He created. He did the work. He created light. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. What does holiness mean? Holiness means to set apart. So there's something very important happening here in verse 2 and verse 3. We read in verse 3 that the that the day of rest, that the seventh day here is holy. It's set apart because of the fact that God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what do we see here so far from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3? Let's dig in a bit. Let's start with work. You think I'm going to talk about Sabbath? You think I'm going to talk about rest? I'm going to start with work. Let's talk about work. What have we seen God do in almost every single verse between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-3? Work. Was it easy to create the heavens and the earth and to create the sun and the moon and the stars and all the vegetation and fill the earth with the birds overhead and the sea creatures and the sea And the animals, domestic and wild, that roam these lands. And the creeping things, which are so small, so tiny. We as humans stand normally, what, five foot, six foot on average or so. And I'm befuddled by these very, very tiny instruments that you need to fix watches that you need to fix uh, very, very tiny devices, let alone work on something like a, a microchip, which is all probably done by machine now. But how did God create God huge, God great, God awesome, God filling eternity with his presence? He creates the little tiny creeping things on the earth. And I don't think he needed tools. God worked in Genesis 1. 
He spoke it into existence. He spoke it into existence. Is there anything more transformative or anything more baseline for all of human understanding than our presence and our history and the story of mankind here on planet Earth? God did the work. There's something very analogous there about the work that he does for Christians too. But let's stay for the moment on the topic of work. Because God created work, because the work God did was good, 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 good. And then God created mankind in his image and likeness. And then it was what? That's right. Very good. You also were created for work. You were. And I am. As previously mentioned, of course, your primary purpose in life on earth is to glorify God. And your secondary purpose is to love other people. Jesus summarized the entire law and the prophets in this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is where I get your primary purpose on earth, and this is where I get your secondary purpose on earth, and that's mine as well. And you were also created to work. For those people who are listening, who were raised in a home that did not teach this or model this for you, let me clarify why you were created to work. Why having a hard work ethic is important. It's not just important, it's really important. And I've already said the first reason. Number one is because God worked in Genesis 1. We see God create, and God create, and God create, and God create, and God create. And it wasn't just the physical creation. It was also the planning, the forethought, everything that God brought to the surface in the physical creation. God knew that in this order of creation, that all of this step-by-step step was leading up to what would sustain life on earth, what would enable life on earth, what would cause life on earth to thrive under his rule and his authority. Point number two, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, who is them? Do you remember? It was male and female. This is his charge to mankind. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were created to work because God tasked us for it. This is God's charge to us, God's command to us to be fruitful. And we talked about how that doesn't just mean procreation. No, that's multiply. And multiply is not limited to procreation either. Being fruitful is enabling and embodying and employing the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We are to emulate our God on this earth. This is a huge charge. I should say it's straightforward, but it is extremely important. And to multiply, procreation, yes, 
under the one process of male and female in specific and individual unit marriage. And then procreation, yes, but it's also to multiply our faith, to teach our faith to our sons and our daughters, to spread the gospel throughout our world, to fill the earth with the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to subdue those false beliefs, those humanistic beliefs, those false religions, those Satan-influenced religions, not by force, but prayerfully so by the Spirit of God, so that God would be glorified. And then to have dominion. God shares his dominion with us. He enables us to have this dominion. And it's a limited dominion. I'll say that. We don't have dominion like how God has dominion. God has unlimited dominion. God has full dominion. God has all dominion. And he says, here, be my apprentice in this limited capacity. Because I created you different than everything I created before. I created you in my image and likeness. And therefore, you're tasked with and enabled and given gifts of certain abilities where your mind thinks and can comprehend somewhat like God. And in certain areas like God, you have love and you have emotion and you have conflict resolution and you have critical thinking skills and you have analytical skills in a way that no other creature on earth has. It's not even close. You have a capacity to understand God's scripture, and you have a capacity to understand the power and magnificence and majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ came to earth to do for us and for the rest of mankind. And you understand love in a completely different way than any other creature on earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you understand love in a utterly and completely different way than anyone who does not follow Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're not capable of love. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you follow God, God reveals himself to you. And God's love is far greater than anything else on earth. Point number three, why you were created for work. And we're going to address this again in a few weeks, but let's jump ahead to Genesis 2.15. You still have your Bibles open. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And folks, by the description here, and I don't fully understand the square mile equivalency, if you will, I think this was a very, very large garden area for the Garden of Eden. God not only had this charge for mankind back in Genesis 1.28, which is full, and this would keep you busy your entire life to devote yourself to this with full wholeheartedness. Not to say, oh, yeah, I'll give that a little bit of time to, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. You know, I'll, 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 I'll just do that a little bit sometimes. At times, you know, or I could just devote a small part of my day each day to do that because, you know, I'm too busy with all this stuff over here. No, that would completely engross your full call to life on earth. 
by all the hours of your day, by all the days of your week, by all the weeks of your year and all the years of your life. But then God makes it a little bit more specific for Adam. He said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Has anyone been a gardener at home or commercially in their life? Depending upon where you're at in the world, this can be an extremely challenging task. And as you become more skilled and as you become more talented and more gifted toward gardening, you can sharpen your skills. You can enhance your skills and perhaps you can bring even more out of the ground because you understand the nutrients that it takes. You understand the water, you understand the temperature, you understand the pH balance of the soil and what you need in which areas to grow what. But gardening can be very laborious. It can. Like farming. Most farmers don't take a vacation day because they can't. Let's look at number four. Oh, by the way, we all learned from point number three. That wasn't just God telling Adam to work. This was something all of us can learn from because when God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, that was very specific. Guess what? You are where you're at in your life right now on earth for a very specific reason. And it may not feel like that, but what I'm asking you is to reevaluate that by asking Holy God in humility with a humble heart to show you because he has you where you're at for a very specific reason, I believe. Point number four, and this is very important, especially in this subculture where laziness is tolerated. I don't know if it's like this in your neighborhood or in your type part of society, but I've seen it. And I've seen it multiple times in my social circles and in my close, uh, we'll say, areas. Paul's charge to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. To combat laziness, Paul says this, if anyone, he's speaking to the church, by the way, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's it. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So for the lazy among us, especially for the lazy in the church, watch a lazy man's attitude change about work if he does not have anything to eat. He's talking to Christians who either grew up in a culture of laziness or just decide to check out and be lazy. And they're refusing to work or they're mooching off others instead of providing for themselves. Paul is saying, if you can provide for yourself, then you must. Obviously, we're not talking here about people who are so severely medically handicapped that they're incapable to do most any type of work. But what he's combating is that God, well, he's combating laziness. And he's saying and he's reaffirming that God created us to work and that work is good. Point number five. In Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, Paul says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing 
that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, he is speaking in this letter, folks, to the church at Colossae. But we can all garner the spirit of the teaching. I don't know if you think about this. I don't know if you've had a job like this. But I think about either working for the trash company or maybe more people can relate. Now, I've never, full disclosure, I've never worked for the trash company. I had a number of different retail jobs when I was a teenager and then in my early 20s uh, after college. Had a number of jobs and I grew up where cleaning the toilet was part of the chores in a family growing up. And then part of the job description at retail locations when I worked in retail. And I know when I was a supervisor in retail one time, I asked diplomatic, you know, uh, delegation, I delegated to one of the employees as I tried to do it on a rotative basis to clean the toilet in the back for the employees. And he out and outright refused. And that told me a lot about what was in his heart at that time, doesn't it? We ought not think as believers any job is below us. Look at the posture Christ adopted when he came to earth. First of all, he limited his divine nature in so many ways. Coming to earth, not as an adult, speaking and preaching the gospel just right out of the gate. No, as a newborn baby. And then limited himself for a number of years as babies normally don't talk on day one. And he grew up. And that exhibited to all of us a great humility about our Savior, about our God. Folks, he was betrayed. He was gossiped about. He was lied about. He was spit upon. He was beaten for telling the truth, first of all, and for being innocent of these charges against him. Christ took the posture of humility. He did not think that anything was below him. He knew he was coming to earth to die on a cross because that's what it was going to take to save all of those who would put their faith and their trust in him. And he still did it. So whatever you do, whether you're a janitor, whether you're a retail worker, Whatever your job is, do it in such a way as to glorify God. Because I believe what Paul is saying here is true for all of us. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. So in our instant gratification culture... God calls us to be set apart like him. Set apart, holy. To think differently, to act differently, to not pursue our basis desires or our carnal indulgences or the, the thing we want right now, but instead to, like he says in Matthew 6.20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's command, God's charge to us, God's invitation to us, but it's even stronger than that. When he invites you to follow him, to surrender your life, to follow him, to be a God follower, to be a Christ follower, to walk in his ways, to give your life to him, he's commanding delayed gratification, if you want to call it that. He commands denying your sinful desires, your worldly desires, and choosing to think and to long and to pursue and worship the things of the kingdom of God, namely himself. This is our hope, folks. We don't have to hope. We don't have to settle for the lesser things of this world. We don't have to settle for the things that culture is pushing on us, that society is pushing on us, that our government is pushing on us to value. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. And we work because God works. Because he made us for work. Because if we are obedient to God, we are lights for Jesus Christ in the world. I.e., people will know we are Christians. So now every single thing we do testifies to either who our God is, or we're taken away from that. We're taken away from the testimony of our God. So are we, are we lazy? Well, people will know we're a Christian and we're lazy. Are we distracted by the lesser things of the world? Well, people will know that we're a Christian who is distracted by things that have no value. Or are we actively pursuing the things of God, working with all our hearts, knowing that every part of what we do testifies to who God is. See, when we have the name Christian on us, when we have this name, when we take, when you come to Christ, you take the name of Christ onto you as an identifier. So Christian is an identifier. I identify my entire life with Christ, on Christ. So every part of what we do testifies to who God is, to the world. So are we exemplifying God because we want more than anything to be like God because our love for God is so strong that in contrast, there's a darkening cloud over the things of this world in which we used to value and now they have no meaning for us because our love for God is growing stronger every day? Are we exemplifying God because we want more than anything to be like our God? Dear church, God created us for work. And in our work, while we're working, let us embody the fruits of the Spirit, the loving personality, the humble personality that Jesus modeled so well. And what else did he do? He was a truth teller. One of my favorite verses of the Bible, Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus told the truth. We ought to tell the truth. Jesus was a peacemaker. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. We ought to be peacemakers who sow in peace 
that we might raise a harvest of righteousness. And all of these testify to our great God. Now, let's talk about rest. You were created to rest. You were created to glorify God. You were created to love other people. You were created to work. And yes, I know many of you probably don't want to believe this, or they, or you think, I guess, okay, I've known some people like this, by the way, it's acceptable that my body needs sleep because I don't last too long past 24 hours without it. But yes, all people were created to rest. And I'll give you some reasons specifically why. Number one, God rested. You probably knew that one because we just read it at the start. Genesis 2.2, God rested. What are, what are we to make of this? God rested. I asked earlier, do you believe that God needed, needs, needed and needs, active, past and present? Do you believe he needs rest? I don't think he needs rest. He chose to rest. And therefore, because he chose it, we need to do it. That's point number one. Point number two, God blessed the day of rest and made it holy. And that's Genesis 2-3 that we read earlier. Because God blessed his rest, that means it's extremely valuable to him. He placed this importance on it, this holiness upon it. This means when something is holy, this is something, it testifies to the very heart of God. It testifies to who God is. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. I don't know that the modern church is too good at this aspect, but I do believe God calls us in every year of the calendar to rest. And it's not sleep, though that's important too. And we'll get to that. Point number three, God's command. We first read about this in prominence in Exodus 16. Verse 4 and following, we have Moses, his brother Aaron, and the large number of Hebrew people wandering in the desert. And all of these folks had just been witnesses to crossing the Red Sea on dry land by the Lord's hand. He separated the sea. God separated the sea, something these folks had never seen before, and I've never seen. This was a unique, miraculous circumstance by God when he parted the sea and the people walked through the center on dry land to escape the Egyptian army. And then God closes up the sea over the Egyptian army after all the Hebrews had made it across. And they had also witnessed the miracle of the sweetening of bitter water in the desert by the Lord's hand so that they could drink good water. And here in Exodus 16:4, let me read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. 
On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord, which was the people's sin, by the way. When you read that, it means they had a critical spirit against the Lord. For what are we, Moses and Aaron said to the people, that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Notice, folks, repetition. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. That's a measurement. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Lee, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. See, they didn't trust the word of the Lord. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it, because they obeyed God. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. Imagine that. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. A long passage, 
and a very important story. The people were not obedient when they heard the voice of the Lord. God commanded them to rest. And what did some of them do on the seventh day? They went out to look for the bread that God had provided, which he said he would provide for six days, and there would be none on the seventh day. But for six days, he would provide bread. And he told all of them, in God's loving provision, there would be twice as much to gather on the sixth day. And if they listened to him, see, you could not gather the bread and then keep it overnight. Because God's, and it said it at the very start of the passage, that God was setting this forth to test the people. It wasn't a judgment against them. When the scripture says that God tests them, it means that they're being measured. God measures his children from time to time. I don't know if you know this. And that's because he wants to see us be faithful to him. Out of a loving relationship that we're obeying his commandments. God says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's very straightforward. God set out these laws and these commands to protect us, to strengthen us, to set us apart in holiness to him, and that we would be about righteousness, about the things of light, about the things of life, and not about sin and not about death, not about division, not about discord, not about anger, not about greed, not about jealousy. God knows what brings life. And that's what's in his law. And that's what's in the Ten Commandments. And it took a while for the people to obey God. Point number four. Jesus' command to trust God in Matthew 6.25. So we have God resting in point number one. God sets the example for us. And then God blessed the day of rest and made it holy in point number two. Then God commanded it in point number three. And in point number four, Jesus, in like mind, commands us to trust God. In the Sermon on the Mount, 625, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Folks, why do people have a hard time with rest? Why do people have a hard time stopping? There's this inherent selfishness. There's this inherent default mechanism or something more present in some than others. But the go, 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 go is the only expectation for my life. Therefore, I must go. Or the challenge before me is so great that I have to give everything I've got 24-7, 365, because that's what it's going to take to succeed or that's what somebody else expects of me, or that's what I expect of myself. And all of this is disobedient. And I think it comes either from anxiety, or it comes from this inherent, and maybe in certain countries of the world, it's more prevalent than others, and possibly at times in America, it's this way. But that I've got to push harder than anybody else because I need to, one, either achieve it, or two, that's how I'm going to be successful. The word success, that's how you define success. And God wants you to be faithful. God's not so concerned about your definition of the word success. 
as he is about your faithfulness to him, as he is about you living a life that glorifies him, as he is about you living a life that testifies to who he really is. Let's read Jesus' words here in Matthew 6. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? <laughs> How long has it been, folks? A little over 2,000 years. I'm just pausing real quick. It seems like Jesus was speaking specifically to a few groups of people there. Is not life more than food? I think some people within the sound of his voice were very concerned about what types of food they eat. Sound familiar? Or about the luxurious type of food that they ate. Sound familiar? And he says, is the body not more important than clothing? How many people define themselves by the clothes that they wear? Funny, it's been a little over 2,000 years. Not a lot changes, hmm? Jesus continues, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns like farmers do, Bryce adds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, who is arguably the richest king who ever lived, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What does that tell you about the nature of God, folks? that he's descriptive of a flower in greater splendor than King Solomon. Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. I know a lot of us today, folks, are Gentiles. What Jesus is saying there is the people outside of the body of belief. Gentiles were grafted into the vine, and there's also a differentiation of definition of Gentile. A Gentile who believes and trusts in God, and here he's using it that Gentiles who do not have regard for God. So just to clarify, verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. There's a little humor in that. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Folks, God directs the path of your life in terms of he knows everything that's going to happen. He's very intentional. He's very purpose-driven. So he has you in the place that you are for a reason, and he takes care of his children. We do not need to worry about the things of this world, about the things of this world when the world is not focused on God. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
We can take a day of rest because that tells God, first of all, it's obedient to God. And it tells God that we love him more than trying to prove something to ourselves. Point number five, Jesus also said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So now let's draw a distinction between sleep and rest. Sleep is important. We each need that every day. Unless you're a diehard and you go one to two, maybe three days without sleep, either due to your work or your adventures. But the body was not made to function that way. And if you are and you can and you still think clear on day three, then you may be on the verge of extraordinary in the human realm. And I'm not saying that's not possible, but what I'm saying is if you're like me, you need sleep within every 24-hour period to function your best and in many ways to be well-rested, but that's primarily physically and mentally. And what is Jesus saying here in point five? He's saying from sleep, well, he's not even touching on sleep, but I will say for me, sleep does a number of restorations within the body and the mind. True rest comes from time with God. When we step back, when we put on the brakes, and yes, that means taking our foot off the accelerator, then we're saying we do it out of trust. We do it out of love for God. We do it out because we want to obey God, because God commands this of us, that we're saying we obey him. Our culture pushes us so hard that, that there's this mentality of, well, not necessarily in the equity movement that's now being pushed, but prior to that and outside of that, I'll say that the culture pushes you so hard that the definition of American or Americanism or in whichever country of the world that you're in, there's this mentality that you have to rise above by being relentless in your pursuit of work or your pursuit of achievements. But God has a different standard. He says to be prudent, to be hardworking, to work heartily is for the Lord and not for men, because our inheritance is God himself. What we're all working toward, or what waits in store, and what is our hope is God. We don't have to work for the good job stickers of this life. If you remember that when you're in elementary school, I don't know if your teacher did that, but I got those a lot. It said, fantastic. You did it. Great job. Unbelievable on the sticker. And then you get trophies. And then as you get older, it becomes different things. Bonuses, titles, cars, apartments, status. We're not working for that. God has a different standard. When we stop and rest, intentionally rest to spend time with the Lord. Rest because God rested. Rest because God commands us to rest. 
and rest because we're trusting him, then something incredibly great and righteous comes out of it. And I'll go back to Jesus' words here. All who labor and are heavy laden. I think that's all of us. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus says, I will give you rest. That's something only God can do, folks. You wonder who can take the burden from you? Who can take the anxiety from you? Who can listen to all of the turmoil and all of the the stress that you're dealing with? Who can work through it with you? Who can lead you to the other side of it? Who can lead you to let go from the heavy burdens that so many people carry around on this earth? And I think a lot of it is our past sin, folks. Whether it was a sin you committed yesterday or is a sin you committed 30 years ago, we all carry some form of weight or it was a tragedy in your life, something that was not sinful. Jesus says, come to me, all you, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God will give you rest. Sabbath is about rest. Sabbath is about stopping and saying, God, you're more important than anything that I had to do today. Have you said those words today? Have you said that phrase today or yesterday or last week or last weekend or last Saturday or last Sunday? I have number of things to do today. I have to do these today. I have to do these today. God says, rest. Rest in me because you trust me, because I'm a good God, because I love you, because you're made in my image and my likeness. And we have a bond and we have a relationship that I don't have with any other creation. You're very special to me. This is God's words to you, dear Christian. Some Christians wonder if the Sabbath is something that we need to observe today. Sure, this was important in the Torah. Sure, this was important in the Old Testament. Sure, this was important at the time of Jesus. I'm not sure that it has to specifically be in the same manner that the Jews celebrated it, which was from Friday evening, by the way, till Saturday evening in our calendar. But I'm quite confident that we are to celebrate a Sabbath and to have a large chunk of time on a regular basis, I will say weekly, with the Lord. And to be seeking the Lord and to be seeking restoration from the Lord. Let's look at this. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, and you can read about this in Exodus 20, is the first telling of it. In Deuteronomy, we'll have it again. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The third is that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The fourth is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. The fifth is to honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. 
The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness about your neighbor, that is to say, to lie. And ten is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. Servants were common at the time. Or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I do not believe that any Christian would argue the fact that we are to obey those other nine commandments today. So my question to you is this. Are we not to also obey the Sabbath today? What does he say about the Sabbath? Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. Again, I said servants were common in their culture at that time or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Sojourner means a traveler or someone who's in your area for a small period of time. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, you can read this in Exodus 28 through 11. The Sabbath, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Moses also said in Deuteronomy 5.15 about the Sabbath, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And he's talking to those who were delivered from Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Folks, Jesus also draws a distinction between sleep and rest, rest being time with God in this. Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. I find this interesting, folks, because obviously he was traveling with a group. And if he got up very early in the morning, the text says, I'm assuming he was physically tired, mentally tired. He was human. He left the group. Despite the fact that he knew, quote, everyone would be looking for him. And he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Because Jesus knew that to have rest, to have communion with the Father, to have communion with God, to have time with God, to have conversation with God, is where he would have true rest. It's where he would find restoration for his soul. He was often withdrawing, you read in the Gospels, by himself, out of the crowds, just walking away from the crowds of thousands after he spoke with them, to go alone by himself and to pray. One more verse here. Isaiah 40, verse 29. The Lord gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. See, God is the source of your strength. 
even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Young men, of course, the epitome of supposed strength in probably every culture. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They who wait for the Lord, folks. How do you wait for the Lord? You wait for the Lord in conversation with the Lord, in petitioning the Lord, in bringing your requests over and over again to the Lord. Because that shows that we love him. And that shows that we trust him. And who do you talk to the most in your life? You talk the most to the people that you have a really good relationship with. Communication. It shows who God is in your life. As our lives must be lived for the kingdom of God, so too we must rest in trusting for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Wonderful God, holy God. God who worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day. It's still a marvel and a mystery to me, Lord, because I'm quite sure it was not needed, but you chose it. You wanted it. There's a reason. You're intentional. You're purpose-driven. You're showing us something in this about yourself. Therefore, we ought to embrace it and magnify it and lift it high and honor it and obey it because you command it. And know that there's something in us too that requires this rest. Now rest in the simple definition, yes, we need that. But truly, God, we need you. At every moment, to every minute, every hour, every day for life, or we're missing something. We can have salvation in your name. We can have, we can believe with our mind, believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is God and be changed. But we also need to rely on you every single minute of every single day to have this relationship, to have this light, to have this life that you have given us. We need to be in communication with you. We need to be in prayer, surrendering our desires to yours. In reading from your word, to learn from you, God, to learn what it is for you to be holy, to learn what it means for us to be holy, to learn what it means to be about the things of the kingdom of God, like Jesus Christ, you modeled on earth for us so perfectly, perfectly, God, without sin. You did it utterly and completely and perfectly. And your love for us is so great and so tender and so gentle, but it's very straightforward too. And your call is for us to be set apart. The world does not rest in you. The world does not take one day off utterly and differently. They may sit around and do nothing, 
but I think they're probably still too driven to even do that. But this is not that. Resting in you is spending time abiding with you, reading your word, praying with you, spending time with other Christians in fellowship, in valuing the things of God, in proclaiming the things of God, and encouraging each other in God, that our focus might be the kingdom of God. Help us, God. Teach us, instruct us, move in our hearts to celebrate you and resting in you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in God's story of creation in Genesis 2.